Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Tridister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 18, where we'll be discussing lines 54 to 5 on the inverter. So, what have we been up to in the very long time since the last recording? Johanna? I, I fenced again, so I sparred again. I hosted a Fechtschule in Salzburg, like, like a mini Fechtschule for, I don't know, 15 people maybe. And it was fun for the others um, because I turned my pinky finger into a burst sausage. Um, mm. Yes, but it's mostly healed, so it's all right. Um, but the others had a lot of fun. And I had three okay fights. No, they were they were, they were all right. Okay. And... Oh yeah, I was also asked to act as a judge at this year's edition of the Dutch Lions Cup. It's a digital edition, so uh, people are supposed to film a specific set of techniques uh, taken from Lev. So sequences from the Stücke of the Zornhau, the Krumpau, and so on. And... Uh, T-School and Arthur Farmer and Kai Rüberg and me, or I, we were supposed to judge them and we are through with all of them. They were, uh, there were 26 participants and it was so interesting um, just to see how different all the interpretations are. I think by now I've become really, really good at guessing uh, the nationality of each participant by just uh, <laughs> looking at their interpretation of the oh Scheidelhau Scheidelhau was most different like whoa <laughs> there were some videos where I had a really hard time um, uh, identifying the techniques but I'm I'm not saying that they were bad or or good or anything they were just different and it's cool to see how different their interpretations are cool. And and so, how's that competition being judged? Is it like how good their movement looks, or how closely it sticks to the text? Um, both. So we're not really looking at the interpretation. So only if it's if it sticks to the text. So if the text says something about a short edge and we see a long edge, then it's obviously wrong. But apart from that, we are looking at the at the speed, at the martial intent of the. Uh, if the motions are fluid and so on. And we've came up with five people we uh, whose videos we really, really liked. And from now on, you can vote <laughs> uh, for the video you liked most. Sweet. Uh, we'll pop a link to that in the episode yeah. description. Cool. Michael Chidester, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Let's see. Uh, what 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 did I talk about last when we, last time we did this? Um, I think I was the I finished the Capoferro page. I'm still doing Wiktenauer updates, and I actually found a second painted copy of Capoferro on that note, which is nice. Now I have about half of the figures in nice watercolor paints. I also launched a second facsimile project, the Talhofer facsimile. I think I've talked about it before. That project is wrapping up. In fact, I just received five more boxes of facsimiles from the bindery, which are sitting in my office waiting to be opened. Um, and those are going to be shipped out. But I'm now going to, next one is going to be the Getty version of Fiori Battaglia, 
the uh, most famous of Fiore Gelliberti's fencing treatises. And that one is well along. We've got about 225 orders, raised about $50,000 so far to pay for that, 55000 And that one I'm, gonna hope to, I'm hoping to wrap up by the end of the year. So these mysterious boxes that I haven't opened yet because I just picked them up right before we started um, also should have the first print samples of the Getty facsimile in them so we can, I can figure out what paper I want to use. But that's going to be super cool. And awesome. I've spent a lot of time trying to get the word out and get people, get get the word out to people who have both the money and the interest to pay for this sort of book. Cool. Um, and these facsimiles, we're not talking thousands of dollars. We're talking how much? A couple of hundred? Yeah. Uh, so the Talhofer was for 150 The Fiore is 175 Cool. So much, much, much cheaper than the than standard the standard price for facsimiles, and I would say at least eighty percent as nice as the really expensive ones. Cool. Um, yeah, we'll put a link in to this show notes as well, so that both of our listeners can have a look. Awesome. And yeah, that campaign is going to end at the beginning of September, so I think this episode will be out in time for any of our listeners, if we have any, to go and take a look. All three of them who've already backed it, yes. Yeah. Oh, and also we are, one of the Talhofer facsimiles is going to the Dutch Lion Cup as a prize, since uh, nice. Tish just reached out to me this morning to ask if I wanted to give a prize. Whoa! So I think that announcement is going to happen later today, and well before this issue, is, this episode is released. Oh, cool. Nice. Steve, what have you been up to? Um, it's been a while. I finished that book, Mental Preparation of Fencers and Others, by Adelar Col- Aladar Kogler. And the only reason I bring that up is because I was recommended it on this very podcast by TQ. So well, I figured I'd good. mention it. And I second his recommendation. I did some fencing, and I had a realization about the Tzerhau Yes, I'm still on the Tzerhau when in uh, my fencing, still trying to figure it out. And I had a realization that I feel like I should have had a while ago, which is that it works a lot better if you... So, like, you're closing a little bit of distance and then closing the rest of the distance with a big step to your left side um, with your left foot and then springing off of that step into the Tzerhau to your right side. So it gives you a better angle and also allows you to more easily jump to the side. And the reason I should have figured that out earlier is because we've kind of, there's been a fair amount of discussion on it, um, especially from work done by um, Travis Mayotte about the uh, initial step in with the left foot. And yeah, yeah, so I think it definitely helps a lot with this fair how rather than just trying to come straight in or like sneak into distance in a different way and then go straight from going straight into jumping to the right side. I meant to ask you something about that. When you do this, are you intending to land with your right foot more in front of your opponent or to their left side? Like, are you going left so you can step right and stay in the middle? Or are you actually trying to go around your opponent to the right? Going left so you can... 
Well, I mean, when when you take that step to the left, usually they turn a little bit to meet you. So maybe from the perspective of where you start, it might be kind of in the middle or a little bit to the right of it. But from the perspective of where they end up, it should be far to their left. At least from hearing you describe it, that might be an ideal way to be able to get around to their right side on the second step, um, which if you're actually moving to their, to your right side very much, it's almost impossible. Yeah, maybe. So to get in on the follow-up to how to actually get all the way around them on the, on the left side. Right, yeah. I yeah. haven't had a chance to try it, though. Sweet. Yeah, that could be. Like in the... Uh... Like the the Alcermina type thing. Haven't you tried well, it out with your new uh, your new gloves yet, Mike? Oh yeah, BTW. What what's happened in HEMA since our last recording? I have pro gauntlets. <laughs> Somehow, in there, sending out exactly twenty pairs, I was selected as the person least likely to use them. So I got one of the very first pairs. Um, somehow. <laughs> And I have not actually fenced in them yet, just swung a sword around because obviously in the US, we're still mired deep in the plague and can't do nice things like fence. Uh, do you like them? Do you not like they them? Are, send them to me. They're quite nice. They're well made. They're not quite my size. I kind of took a leap. I was about a millimeter outside of the low end for the hand length and the high end for the hand width because I have weird-shaped hands, I guess. So the fingers don't quite fit the way I'd like them to, but I think with some minor tweaking, I can get around that. And I think they're totally as good or better than any other glove I've tried. So at, the, at that low bar, they're a winner. <laughs> they may not be sort of the, the messiah of gloves that we were promised, though. Sadly. Okay. It never uh, is. But but they're very nice and in a huge step up from my Black Lance gloves and my Koenig gloves and my every other kind of gloves I've tried, Red Dragons, Spes Heavies. I think they're the best glove that I've ever seen. Just not quite the right size for me and not quite the same as fencing barehanded. Don't worry, I'm sure the Fox will be yeah, soon be the perfect glove that will solve all problems. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Maybe I think... Maybe well. I like mittens. I don't. I don't want any kind of five finger stuff. Shenanigans. The glove I, the glove I was trying to sell, um, Martin and you all on making, um, which they potentially agreed to do, although only after they've got the the first regola <laughs> out, is the pro mitten. <laughs> all the same really? attack, but in a mitten glove. Are you being serious? or Are you joking? No, I'm serious. I talked to them about it like a year and a half ago. That would be mm -hmm. awesome. So just replace the fingers with a shell? Yeah, basically. It. it seems like everybody's focusing on working on five-finger technology, and no one's working on advancing mitten technology. So that would be, <laughs> that's great to hear if it's true. It would be like, like they, they were, the conversation was like, you should do this. And they said, I mean, that's a really cool idea, but we're going to get the finger one out first because we've got a million dollars in backer funds for that. And, you know, right. fair enough. Of course. Um, I, don't but, know, I mean, can you really improve on the best heavies as far as clamshells? Yes. Everyone who likes clamshells seems in love with them. No, well, one, no, because they're terrible compared to sparring gloves. And two, or the sparring um, gloves. I mean, one or the other. There's two camps, right? But also, if you have 
if you look at the size of Progol, let's compare to the size of most of the other finger gloves of comparable-ish protection level, you can pretty much fit Progolnets inside most of them. Right. So if you take the same protection tech they're using and you make a missing glove, which is already a lower profile structure, like because the fingers are protected together, you don't have to have independent layers of protection between the fingers and stuff. You could make probably the physically smallest protective glove in terms of the amount of extra bulk it adds to your hand. That would be awesome. So I should say my plan to do what my what I plan to do when I'm back to fencing with these, since I have, as our listeners may or may not know, a full swept hilt longsword with um, four ports and everything, and I fence with just a light um, Olympic fencing glove on my right hand, typically, and then a heavy glove on my left hand. The program that will replace the left hand glove, even though it fits in the right hand spot, I don't need it there. And so I, I plan to use this as my solution for protecting the hand that has no basket. And I think they'll be great for that. To, to answer your question about the uh, clamshells, the, the sparring gloves are great, but they're not perfect. There's definitely room for improvement. Like there's open spots that could, can still potentially be stabbed through and, you know, there's some weaknesses. Yeah, like actually one feature which would be nice in a permit and is just having all of their anti-thrust technology. I know several people who've had their hands run through in sparring gloves. Yeah, I've had some close calls. I've, I haven't gotten any injuries through them, but I've had some pretty close calls, including cross guards that go through the knuckle area, but Ooh, went yeah. in between my fingers. And that happened to me twice. It hasn't Ooh, happened to anybody else that I've ever heard of, but... I know somebody who got stabbed through their sparring glove with the shilt of an Albion Meyer and actually what? broke it away. I know a couple of years back, a few friends of mine, like two or three people I knew, had their hand run through while they were fencing in sparring gloves in like three weeks. And it was all... Is that like the... It's the web of the thumb and through the hand. Yeah. Thrust injury, exactly. And is that just because the foam is not sword-proof? Or there no, gaps it's because there's a little gap there where there isn't any protection. Um, it just sits like over the web of your thumb where your thumb joins your hand. Uh. Um, and if the sword point hits there, it kind of sits in it and it doesn't slide out and then it just punches through. Well, I will say that looking at the design of the pro gauntlets, they are have an absurd amount of engineering in them. And just yeah. the amount of parts that went in, like the underglove is a whole complex creation all by itself. And then the shell that goes over it um, are apparently two separate engineering projects that fit together. Like they really, really, really use the time, the eight years of development time. Well, it looks like I've never seen a glove like this. So, you know, yeah. look forward to getting your pair if you have them on an order. They're totally worth it and totally worth the All price. Right. Sweet. So that was a digression after Steve's what he's been up to, wasn't it? Yeah. Cool. Uh, <laughs> T, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Really very little exciting for HEMA. Uh, I'm working on COVID reopening protocols for my club here in London because our venue is reopening soon. So I'm trying to work out what I can safely and effectively do. Um, but that's pretty much it. Cool. So I haven't been up to much fencing-wise because we're back into lockdown here in New Zealand thanks to a mysterious outbreak. So, yeah, I've done nothing fencing-wise. Built a bouldering wall. That was fun. Cool. Has, um, has New Zealand had any COVID deaths? Yeah. Like 25. But that was uh, all during our initial outbreak. I think at the moment we have one hospitalized case from this second outbreak. 
and for the last few months we've had no community transmissions some some during uh managed isolation and quarantine from citizens returning from overseas oh no the world is ending in new zealand one hospitalized <laughs> person yeah, well it's it's been tough to get here but it's um, <laughs> strong strong buy-in from the population to anti-covid measures but anyway this isn't the covid podcast this is the swords podcast <laughs> Johanna, uh, could you give us the the inverter section in the original German? Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Verkehrer zwingt, Durchläufer auch mit ringt. Den Ellbogen gewiss nimm, spring ihm in die Waage. Thank you. And Steve, could you give us uh, Harry's translation? The inverter equips you to pass through and grips to. Take the elbow to bring him off balance and spring. Cool. The English version is so rhymey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it just makes up words Mine's like spring. Way better. <laughs> the spring is in the German. Oh, yeah. Fair play. Yeah, it's try, yeah. It tries to rhyme elbow and the, the balance, doesn't it? Yes. In the original German. Elpogen and Wagen. And Wagen, sorry. I was going to say, it's probably worth just going through the actual loss for this, because it's quite a short section, isn't it? Sure. Read the you'd uh, love version. No. Oh, I don't know which <laughs> column that is. I'm, I'm going to read the amalgamated version, because that's oh, nice. Okay. In red. Oh boy, that's going to be fun. It's going to be a ride. That's going to be a uh, mess. They're so different. Alright, gloss. Remember that the inverter is called the half-strike, or the turned hand, by fences. You shall deliver it covertly with your onset when you want to constrain the opponent so that you may run through him and correctly grasp him with wrestling. Drive the inverter like this. When you have approached him halfway to him with your onset, then go the other half further towards him over and over with your left foot before and hew freely under the half strike from him from your right side and with each step forward, still with a left foot forward and with a hue, invert so that the long edge of the sword is always turned above and then hew after with the long edge back downwards. When you reach him, and as soon as you bind him on his sword, with the underhew or overhew, then within it, hang your point in above, such that your thumb comes under, and stab in towards his face. Thus you constrain him so that he must displace. If he displaces the stab and drives high with his arms, then run through him. Or if he remains low with his hands on the displacement, then grip his right elbow with your left hand, and hold him fast therewith and leap with your left foot in front of his right, and so shove him over your foot. Or, if you do not to shove him over your foot by the elbow with your left hand, as four described states, then drive your left arm around behind his body and throw him before you over your left hip. And how you should run through, you will find that described hereafter in the piece which says, run through. Hang it to the floor by the pommel. It brings grips for sure. So the first interesting thing about this is that now Danzig has jumped on the crazy train with Yudlev, who in the first failure had a strange setup that none of the other glasses had. Now Danzig and Lev both have the same strange opening, and Ringek stands alone with not giving a beginning part. Well, what was interesting to me translating the, the Lev version is that I think it's Danzig starts that little section saying, this is sometimes called the half hue. Left doesn't have that, so it's just or like, the turned hand. Yeah, 
when you come to half to zoo, when you come half to zoo fashion to him, to go the other half. <laughs> and I'm there like, oh my god, maybe maybe zoo fashion is describing physical distance. Maybe, maybe it's divisible. Maybe you can be like in half zoo fashion. What is this? Is half of the concept of zoo fashion. Yeah, and then after years of thinking about it, about probably months, Chillister pointed out that there's other glosses that I should maybe read. Heresy, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I yeah, I when I first looked at Lev, like I never considered that it would be like a half of a Zufeshtin or something, because I guess because I looked at uh, Danzig first, so I was just like, oh, when you go the half hue to him. In the two fashion, you're just doing the half you because that's what the thing's called. Sweet. But yeah, I can so, see how that could be taken weird. So the, the kind of movement this is describing, my understanding is that you're approaching, and as you do, you're cutting up with the with the long edge from your right side, and then inverting the sword and cutting back down along that same line with the long edge. Is that fair? Well, it highly depends on what version you're looking at. Ah, okay, fair play. Should we go through uh, one by one and talk about what we think of each of them? Yeah, go for it, Steve. Okay. Um, I guess I'll talk about uh, Lev, and I guess T should probably talk about the ring version. So my basic, my basic understanding of, of the Lev is you approach, you do uh, Unterhau with the long edge facing up, so just like regular Unterhau. And you do like a couple of them as kind of a preparation or to like draw out your opponent. And then when they bind onto your sword, you then rise and wind and try to stab them in the face. And then if they parry that to the side, then you step in and grab the elbow and do whatever kind of wrestling you want. Sweet. So, and the ring version, T? Yeah, so Ringex like super different here. It's one of the this is one of the plays I find really interesting because there's so much difference between glosses. Uh, Ringex doesn't have any effect in her entry. It starts with when you get a bind on the sword from uh, an overhow overhue or an underhue doesn't matter. Just when you bind on the sword, then you invert your sword in the bind, so you turn the sword upside down, push the point towards the face. That creates the parry, and then you come behind the parry to take the elbow or to wrestle if you prefer. But it's interesting that it describes the inverting, the way it uses the term inverter uh, is different to the way Lou does it, which is interesting. So it's I would disagree that it's as different as T says. Um, it omits the beginning and starts with the bind, but the bind itself seems like it's similar. In the bind is basically the, the same. My, my point is that the, the, the physical action which is described as inverting or inverted is a different physical action. Right. In lieu of the thing which is inverting is the thing you're doing with your cuts before you get the bind or as you get the bind. Whereas in Ringic, it's the thing which you do specifically after the bind. And it corresponds to a thing that which Lou calls hanging instead. Right. Yeah, they um they have a different idea of what the uh operative of inverter actually is in the movement. So yeah, so I, as someone who's not a devotee of Ringek specifically would say that he that he omitted the opening and then tried to shoehorn an inversion into the piece that he retained without changing the physical action. Um, but that's uh, probably heresy to T, at least. Um, 
When I'm finally allowed to come back to America, I'm going to burn your house down. <laughs> you just said you wouldn't do that like yesterday. Yes. Okay, but I I'm going to nail 95 theses to your door. Is that <laughs> because we're talking about the difference in how they use inverter, I want to talk, I want to briefly bring up something that I wish I would have said last um, episode, but I didn't think of it until after we recorded. So in the failure, um, you have failure uh, leads weapons, uh, touches from below as planned in the Tuttle. So you have this th aspect of being from below. And um, in Ringek, he, again, he doesn't have the, like, the approach, but he does a high cut into, you know, fainting into a low target. So that'll be his from below. In Lev, the feints are both to high targets, but he starts with Unterhaus. So again, you have this idea of um, two different sources possibly taking something from the settle and interpreting it slightly differently. So Lev comes from below with Unterhau, and Ringek comes from below by fainting and going to a lower opening. That, that reminds me also, maybe we should say at the beginning of this episode, that this is a play of the failure, and it's in the failure section. Even though we skipped over it last week so we could conjoined the double failure with the single failure, this actually appears between the two plays um, and is very much part of the same teaching in some way. I don't know. Is if it I part of the same it. teaching? I'm not sure I'd agree with that statement. It's in the same part of the same settle and it comes between the two failures. So it's hard I mean, to sure, say. Those it's, are true. Part of teaching. it's literally failures on the left and failures on the right. I don't know if I would go as far as to call it a play of the failure, though. But yes, it is in the same part as them. And it has very little to do with actual Tverhau as as, as do like the failures. So. I think Even one thing... It's a play of the Tverhau. I don't actually see a Tverhau in it. No, there's not. Yeah. One thing which I think might be interesting to talk about quickly, especially for Steve, who's translated, is like the word... Verker, inverter, verkerer, like what does that, what does that word mean? What are the the things that it link it might link to other way, other places, that sort of stuff. Johanna, do you want to go first or? Oh yeah, good chat. Um, I've I've just been thinking about it, but I'm not sure I can say anything to it just now. I think I have to look up some definitions and translations first. That's fair. I think, um, where the, the invert. Uh, translation comes from is so the word uh, keren without the fair without the ver is like to turn or like to turn something around is that right Johanna yes it is so fair care is like a more extreme version of that you're like uh, forcefully inverting something and it's used sometimes also when we want to attack with the short edge They'll say invert your sword and attack with the short edge, which we'll get to in the next episode. When I talk about um, when I teach workshops on this, I sometimes translate it as overturn, like table flip. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, that that goes along with uh, a more forceful version of turning. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the another interesting parallel is into the shaitel in Ringek where the thing which you do with the shaitel as you bring the point in from the cut is you care the sword. Yeah. 
So here you have a very similar physical action being described using a very similar word, like the same word element of turning. Right. Yeah, the the um the prefix uh, VR kind doesn't really have a consistent uh modification to a word. It 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 changes a word, but it changes all words in different ways. So it's it's tough to like a a lovely friend sets and versets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and um uh Fairhawen, which we'll get to. Um in yeah. the Nachreisen. That's a controversial word. So uh Christian Tobler translates it as the reverser. Yes. We we have the, the adjective in modern high German, uh fakiert, uh which is reverse. So Yeah. yeah. But c- couldn't it also be like turn away? Which might make sense of if it's referring to the the wrestling part. Huh. And yeah, maybe. Which doesn't translate it. <laughs> well, you can cool. be inverting the person by flipping them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to invert you. All right. Um, <laughs> in our notes here, T. Well, in your notes, you also ask about the word zwinget. Uh, while we're discussing language, is there anything that you'd like to bring up about that? Nope. Awkward silence. (laughs) That would be easier if I wasn't on mute. Ah. (laughs) Um, But if you were going to say something, Steve, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was going to say that Zwinger is a word that I seem to recall turns up a few times in the mounted, and it has ideas of like constraining or forcing. The mounted talks a few times about like hanging the pointing towards the face and threatening the face and stuff so that somebody's ving it like in a way that they are constrained and compelled to parry. Um, which is an interesting it's, little parallel. It's used in the uh, Gemeine Lehre of the longsword. Mm-hmm. I think you're hearing what you want. It appears several places in the sense of you constrain him so that he must parry. Right. Or this place. And that's, the, I think, the primary use apart from in the Fekera, where you're constraining him so that he must let you wrestle. Well, but the thing which you're constraining him to specifically is the the thing you force him to do is to parry here. You force right, him right, to parry, right. and was, in parrying, he gives you the opening to wrestle. That's what's like... I was thinking of the of the beginning, where it also appears. Um, there with you force the man so that he may run through him and grasp on wrestling. But you're right. There's also a play where you threaten his face with your point, forcing him to parry. But also a part, I mean. But do you ever really constrain someone with a threat to attack? This came up in the Discord the other day. It comes in the Discord like once a month, really. Only if, only if they don't want to get hit. It's a big unanswered question. Some people go to the extreme of interpreting it as clearly we need to have rules about right of way or priority to force their compliance inside the game. Or clearly, historically, they must have had those rules, which is why you can force them that way. Others that would argue that it's you're relying on their self-preservation instincts, which I don't particularly buy that anyone actually has those. In the case of something like this specific action, I think there's a third option, which is like relying less on their self-preservation instincts as much as their flinch reflex. Especially if you're kind of snapping or jabbing something towards the face and eyes, that often will, even if somebody doesn't particularly care, provoke a kind of 
a reflexive shove. Some people seem to try to train that out of themselves, the flinch reflex of something traveling at their face very fast. But that is certainly a thing that humans do instinctively. Well, in the case of this one, if they don't parry it, then you they just get stabbed. Right. And that's what I think it usually means, is you put yourself in a situation where you're going to stab them before they can do anything except maybe parry. Um, and you're engineering that situation, which is why their options are to parry or get stabbed and maybe give you an afterblow. Right. Which is not ever mentioned in the text, if afterblows even exist to lick an hour. Yeah. And for this one, so it's like it forces them so that you're allowed to run through. But the way that it's forcing them is through the parry, which makes it kind of similar to the uh, common lesson in the beginning. Huh. Now, musin is also an interesting word. Johanna, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I what was it? <laughs> but you're the German. What word uh, is it? Musin? Oh, Too must. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's just um, in what context? Like, so the way the way musin is used is not the same way must is used in English, is what I understand. Um, but it has sort of a different connotation. Like it's it's more analogous to 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 the verb to be able to. Like um, in that, so uh, the the thing that one one person told me is that. Um, if you negate musin, it doesn't mean to must not. It means to not must. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Even in in like modern German, and it's it's quite hard as a German speaker um, um, when we learn English to to realize that must not is is not the same as nicht müssen. <laughs> I think it also works the other way around. Okay. So it's like oblige or something. More than must. It's like you don't have to. Yeah. Than you must yeah. not. Nicht müssen is uh, don't have to. Okay. Yeah. But if you cool. if you negate that, if you say you have to, it's the same as to say you must. Yes. So the positive way is similar, but the negative is different. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole here that I'm not competent enough in German to really describe. Um, but I think I get the sense that people reading must possibly in English get slightly the wrong flavor of it. Um, even though there's not a better word than must to translate müssen, it doesn't quite capture the meaning in German is all I wanted to bring up. Okay. And when you're constraining him so that he must displace, that may not be as definitive sounding in German as it is in English. Fair play. Has anybody got anything else to add? Because I think I'd like to wrap up this episode in the next 10 minutes. Um, probably just... That's super fast. <laughs> One little thing I'd like to mention then is that in the uh, fencing from the sweeps, which is sometimes attributed to Ringek, although I know Chittister hates that, there is another play with a Verkehrer. Uh, which starts from Shrankut. And you basically come at them in Shrankut, and then you recare your sword directly at their face, uh, and then you go and wrestle them once they're parrying. So so rather than sort of crimp parrying from Shrankut, you come up and stab, or is it ambiguous? It is not specifically clear. The only action... Let me just dig it up. 
but the action which is described is basically to um uh sorry i'm just pulling it up um but the action which is described basically starts from a um starts from shrankut and goes the thing you're told to do is to invert from there directly without a preliminary action here we go from the so description of the barrier guard Item, or execute the inverter into his face with a point, and when he binds on you, so strengthen with the long edge, and you may execute any of the plays which, plays which are aforenamed, blah 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 Cool. Which kind of goes towards uh, Lev's idea of entering with Interhouse, because you'd presumably do that with from a low guard. It also works quite well yes. with a, if you treat it as the ringek idea of coming to this particular, like, like snapping to this kind of oxy sort of position. You can kind of snap into that position from a shranker, and then you have a short edge bind, so you can strengthen with the long edge by changing edges. So, I have a question for the group, which is, what is a half hue? I think we sort of elided this part and moved on to other interesting aspects. <laughs> but we're told in Danzig to do half hues, and we're told in Lev to go with the half, which I know Steve interprets, and so do I, as being go with the half hue. But what is a half hue? And how does it relate to an inverter? Well, obviously, it's a part of a full hue. <laughs> okay, so does that mean you you spin around in half a circle instead of a full circle? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's obviously there's no you know specific explanation for what it is. Um, otherwise, I guess you wouldn't have to ask the question. <laughs> I guess True. if I had to guess, it would be like. An unterhau where like you don't really, where you do like a uh, advancing step, I guess. You know, you don't you don't do a full passing step through. What it sounds like, I mean, if someone if I didn't know anything about sword fighting and someone told me to do a half hue, I would just do like a short cut, you know, that doesn't start from all the way above and you know has a small a cut, a cut into long point. So uh, I yeah. know. That- I know that Meyerites typically refer to cuts to long point as half cuts. I don't know if that's a thing that Meyer says or not, though, or if it's interpretation. But to them, the full cut is Zornhut to Vexel, and the half cut is Zornhut to long point. Yeah, I've heard people say that. I don't know where it comes from, if it's Meyer or whatever, but I don't know. It sounds like a modern invention to me. So could this mean a rising cut to long point? Because I can envision that based on the text, but I don't know if that's the right interpretation. It could be. Also, another thing to note about this is that Danzig doesn't specifically say that it's an Unterhau. He just says, hew the half hue from the right side with the inverted long edge, sooner and sooner, up and down, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how you could cut with an, with an inverted long edge from the right side down. Well, you do a shield how. That's pretty really the topic of our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't a shield okay, so, how with so the shield? Steve's arguing the shield how is the half cut, right? It could be. I mean, Danzig <laughs> maybe <laughs> might think it is. Well, the 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 you like the shield how with the short edge, but that means it's with the inverted long edge, right? The long edge is up. Exactly. <laughs> what is it? So. Yeah, what does the inverted long edge actually mean? In elsewhere, it seems to mean that you're doing a thing, you're holding your sword, and then you turn your sword over. Can you... Is, is, what do we describe the shield how that way? 
No, I described the shield hound as being with the with the short edge. So I don't know if you like do a shield hound, and then you just contort your body so your hands flip over yet again. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen an roll. interpretation for that from someone actually once. Nice. All right. Cool. This I mean, I, could, I guess you could describe the like a cut to long point and then a wind to ox as being a half hue with inverting the long edge. Unless the long edge has to be inverted during the hue, which I'm not sure. And for, for, from my, my interpretation is that the inverted bit is that you're cutting that into hell with the long edge. Otherwise, your into hell would be the short edge from the right. Yeah, that's, that's why I interpret it, but that's what that's because Lev says that, not because Danzig yeah. does. Yeah, that's that's yeah. you, Lev, pretty much. Well, he's the only source I've read, so good. <laughs> I'm yeah. good at this fencing by the book thing, eh? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the only one that you really should read. The other ones just confuse you. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. but my read of Danzig is that it's a sort of abbreviated version of what Lev is saying. So I'm not sure that I expect disagreement there. Just I, I, I agree with you. I think it probably does mean Unterhau. I just wanted to point out that he doesn't specifically say that it's an Unterhau. Yeah, he doesn't. That's fair. <laughs> One more thing, even though Mike's trying to move us on. In the Vienna version of Nikolaus, he adds another line, How nach mit der langen Schneid wieder unter sich. So, Hugh again after with the long edge um, downwards. So he adds, after each upwards unterhau, he adds, he doesn't say the word oberhau, but he adds like a downward hue with the long edge. So he's turning yeah. a sword again. Yes. So he's just doing up and down cuts as opposed to sort of... Yeah, but he's, he's flipping the sword every time that he does. Yeah. <laughs> Inverting it. He's basically doing like the lightning cut, right? Up, turnover, down, turnover, up, turnover, yeah. down, turnover. Yes. <laughs> right. One last thing to finish on. Steve, you've actually recorded a video interpretation of this, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of. It's not like... It's a little clip of something. Yeah. So is that practicing like a grapevine throw? That <laughs> is like... Uh, so actually, that's the last thing I wanted to talk about, is the actual uh, wrestling part of this. Which <laughs> oh, is, good. I was afraid we were going to skip it. Yeah, which is actually the important part of this technique because it's, that's what it's leading up to. So the video that I recorded is so when the, the text is like if he remains low with the hands with the parry, grip his right elbow with the left hand and hold tight and jump with the left foot in front of his right and shove him over it like that. So that can be read the simplest way to read and perform that is just as a pushing of the elbow to get him off balance and then you can hit whatever with whatever. But that's not really, in my opinion, gripping his elbow tightly and holding tightly. So what I imagined when I did that is kind of like um, a weird uh, Uchimata type thing where you actually grip hard. And if they're wearing a jacket, then it's a lot easier because you can grip the jacket. If they're not, um, it's harder, but still possible. And then you uh, turn in front of them and actually throw them over your left leg. Okay. Yeah. I've never done that. I don't think you could do it uh, in gear because you can't really get that good of a grip on somebody's elbow. So it's purely theoretical. But You could maybe but... do it with an underhook on the arm instead. 
or or sure. just over wrapping yeah. it right yeah Both you can on. do yeah you, you can get other grips like um that don't involve actually grabbing like but if you, you if you underhook under the arm with your left arm and then lock over you should be able to get a fair amount of leverage although it'll more be an elbow lock trying to convince them to go and throw which might be frowned upon and dancing also includes the simple hip throw afterwards. So yep. that's what well, has to be possible. And that's also in right. Nikolaus. The hip oh, throw, okay. yes, is, is definitely uh, doable with gear. Yeah. And it's one of those cases of if you don't want to do the other thing, it, it leaves it up to choice, not up to stimulus. Right. You can either elbow, grab the elbow or do the hip throw. Up to you. Yeah. So an interesting thing that occurs to me when I look at this is we have another high-low dichotomy of different actions depending on if your opponent goes up high or stays low with his hands, which we've seen a few times before now. Um, but in this case, the remains low with the hands turns into sort of classic Fiore-isms. And there's a, a widespread theory that Fiore prefers to remain low with his hands in most techniques and rarely raises up into ox-like positions, for example, uh, but mostly plays down low. And half of his wrestling plays involve elbow grabs. So that piece is interesting um, for that reason, that if your opponent keeps his hands low, then we turn into Fyodor, whereas if he keeps his hands high, then Lichtenauer has other solutions. But also, this is the first time we have running through brought up in the title, I believe. Yes. And this is, and it at the last paragraph, for the last sentence, actually directly invokes the title versus on running through. But if we follow the idea that all of the Hauptstücke are represented in the five strikes, this is the place where the where the Dorklaufen appears. Yeah. So this is the running through in context, even if it's a weird context. So I guess right before we wrap up, I want to ask if, if anybody has actually done this like with this specific setup try to stab in have them parry and then run through with wrestling so i've taken this to the i've done the entry uh and the elbow push but i normally finish with a half sword thrust or similar short range action instead of a throw hmm. oh yeah, yeah totally but it just wasn't on camera <laughs> <laughs> i i don't think i've ever done that weird a dancey thing like with the left leg the up and down up and down i i <laughs> but i will <laughs> yeah i've never done that bit but that bit's not in my source so it doesn't exist nah. right. i will and i'll record it <laughs> i don't think i've ever wrestled from this specific setup but i don't know i've definitely got into like done wrestling stuff before Oh, I think I've I've definitely ended up in a similar wrestle, but trying to do that kind of like a rising, upset, rising, displacing thrust from your low right to get the bind, yeah. and then going for a thrust and missing, and then grappling. I think from this situation, what I normally go for, so if I'm stabbing in and they're pushing me hard to their left, my right, what I usually go for is a wrap up of either either both of their arms or their sword arm, and then a stab yeah. or a pommel. So, yep. So, usefulness of this section in actual fencing out of ten. 
three blind judges out of four. Two the, blind the, judges. The the concepts I say is maybe a seven, and the exact play probably like a two or a three. Who? <laughs> the idea of like. <laughs> Especially if you take the React version of like snapping, sort of treating it as a very aggressive snapping kind of winding movement, um, that's a really effective way to draw a sharp parry off the wind. Which, if you're comparing it with forward movement, you can use to get elbows or get in behind their sword pretty easily. So that bit is very useful. Sweet. And thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been Fencing by the Book, episode 18. I've been your host, Michael Smorridge, and our panel today have been Johanna Hopfgartner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.